Hello there, and welcome back to the Real Talks podcast. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Alan Kearns, who back in 2001 had the rare experience of playing in both the All-Ireland Football and Hurling Finals within a matter of weeks for Galway. Throughout the noughties, there was plenty of hype surrounding his dual career. But since then, Alan has pursued another passion and raised millions of euros that has saved and changed thousands of lives in Africa. We spoke about how playing sport at such a high level helped him to develop the skills and self-confidence to take on such massive projects and how staring death in the face while in Africa changed his perspective on both sport and life. Before we start, a quick reminder for you to please share this podcast into your WhatsApp groups or online, on Twitter or Facebook or send them to friends through email or whatever. Your support is invaluable to us in spreading the word and helping to celebrate these GA heroes. My name is Alan O'Mara and this is episode 13 of the Real Talks podcast with Galway's Alan Kearns. It's back down with Alan Kearns taking on Ben O'Connor. Good return by Galway. Alan Kearns, a third point for him. I suppose start off just to thank you for your time, for taking the time out and for agreeing to do this. I know you're a busy man and it's been a busy week for all Galway people. Um, I suppose over the last couple of weeks, we've had Ushin McConville and McFenley on, so two different people, different stories. And it's really just around capturing those different personalities and different passions, I suppose, the players for the game, from, from our games have. I was going to start, obviously, just on a, on a light-hearted note and just ease into this by just chatting about what the last couple of days have been like in Galway. Obviously, it's a huge day for the county, as I was driving in there today, just with flags up everywhere, just the real, just got that real sense of, I don't know, it's just sort of joy and emotion around the place, even just seeing people, hearing, overhearing people talking, and I suppose from your own perspective, what's that been like? It's a relief. <laughs> 29 years has been too long. Um, yeah, I think we needed to win this one after losing um, the last six we've been in. Um, and there's nothing worse coming home after losing our Ireland. I've lost two hurling fans, lucky enough to win one football. And, you know, 2001, we had the homecoming, I was just reminiscing where that was 16 years ago. Unfortunately, we lost the hurling that year as well, but we won the football. And uh, I was just grateful for the lads and Michal being from my club, um, the manager. He, he helped us achieve our greatest day as a club as well in 2011. So he's an unbelievable record now. He's been the only hurling manager, I think, to win a club and a senior uh, All-Ireland. Yeah. Along with Mickey, uh, with uh, Joe Kernan and I think one other in terms of in the football mm-hmm. side. Like from, so from the general supporters perspective, everyone understands that elation and that joy and people who've been trucking around the games. But one of the things I was thinking about on the way down is, is, is there a bit of a conflict in emotion in some way from a past player maybe having been so close and chipping away at it? And you know you've been there and, and you've been close and you've felt the pain, you've felt some joy. Is there a, does that stir up a little bit more emotion in you watching, say, the team last weekend get over the line? Does it, does it stir a little bit more up? I found, I suppose, I was, it was very emotional and I was mm. overjoyed for the players. But sure. you would look back with a, a, a tinge of regret saying, what if uh, we should have done it before that? We didn't do this, we didn't do that. We didn't uh, step up to the plate or didn't ac- uh, accept, we accepted mediocrity in some situations or didn't, um, you know, make a stand. Mm. Um, but no, it's the over, the, the main emotion would be just joy for the players. Um, we, you know, you just, that they have actually done it now and they deserve to because they've worked so hard and they've lost two finals and they've gone through, they've, they've, they've gone through the pain of losing and they deserve it. They're just an amazing team now and Michal is an amazing manager and a good friend of mine and you know, the work they've put in, it's just brilliant for them. It's their time. Unfortunately, I spent 15 years trying to get mm-hmm. it and it didn't work and that's just where I just have to accept that. Um, you do look back with regret. You would have loved one because that yeah. was your dream. Yeah, that's only a natural that's human. That's a natural human instinct. Mm-hmm. But no, I was very emotional and I a tear at the end of it um, seeing the lads do it. Um, and just for the people of God, what it means to people, mm-hmm. you just see it, what it means to like the parents and the supporters and just a general ordinary uh, GA uh, supporter and the villages and the communities. Um, it was just amazing to see that joy uh, and that, um, I suppose, release of raw emotion uh, and raw happy emotion. Uh, I don't think I could have faced going back again, having lost another one across mm-hmm. the Shannon and the post-mortems and the daggers out and the negativity and this and uh, go and we did the minors as well so it was, it was an amazing day you mentioned already the, the personal perspective of yourself having lost two hurling finals does that I suppose do those days are they something that you've put away now but just 
that came back to you over the last couple of days, if that makes sense? Were you thinking about them a little bit more? Um, I remember I was talking to a former player, actually John Connolly, <laughs> and we were just chatting about how, what a great day it was, and we were just saying, there's nothing worse in the world than being... Well, there's a lot worse, but for mm. a player, yeah. nothing worse than the Monday morning after losing that final. You wake up, you had a few drinks, the worst way, and then the realisation comes back that you lost the hurling final. What is that like in that moment? Do you remember oh, it? I remember 2005 when I was just looking up at the ceiling in the city of West and the, the room spinning. I said, oh, gee, I was making up plans to become a professional golfer, making up plans to do all this, to go, just anything but hurling. Yeah, and it just didn't to, involve to that pain something again because we hadn't achieved what we wanted to achieve, the ultimate okay. goal. And anything just to distract myself from the pain of what we, what we, the, the last, the previous day. And, and you do put it away and you do mm. come to terms with it. But you invest so much into it, you see, when you, and when you don't reach that step. But you eventually, I suppose, Africa then taught me, um, you know, a sense of perspective when I came mm -hmm. back from Africa, that it was more about enjoyment and participation and the friends you make and the skills and, and the profile and the positive things you can do outside of the game mm -hmm. um, is far more important. And the friends and the communities you have when you leave the game um, is far more important than any accolade you ever, you ever, you ever win. But you still have, you still have yeah. to have that pet. Absolutely. I suppose, going back to 2001, um, it was obviously, must have been quite a unique time for yourself, being involved in both panels and, and two All-Ireland finals. Um, and I suppose to go from the depths of, say what you're talking about there, waking up on that Monday morning, looking at the ceiling, thinking, Jesus, what am I at? Why am I putting myself through this? To actually experiencing the opposite of that a couple of weeks later, that must have been a very unusual mixture within a, within a pretty short time window, was it? Oh, it was, yeah, it was. And I suppose it was such a distraction that mm. year because um, I never expected to be on the football panel that year because I only took up football when I was 23 mm. in Trinity College. Um, the hurling wasn't that strong and the football was a lot stronger, so I took it up to keep fit during the okay. winter. A year or two previous to 2001. So in terms of club growing up, you would never, never played, played football? Never played football. Your school? No, soccer just... and golf would, okay. would have been my second and third sports. I played Oscar trainer level for Galway, and I, okay. for Galway Town here and I was asked into Galway United, but I just didn't have the time to go Why in. was that actually? Because uh, most people just associate that if you're from a dual club and you play one, you sort of end up playing the other. How come it happened in that way? Was it just as a game that it not just appealed to you when you were younger? Or? No, I'm from Clarenbridge yeah. and there's no hurling, there's no football there. Okay. So Galway is an unusual county that is half the county plays yeah. hurling and half plays football with very few dual clubs. Mm -hmm. So I'm South Galway okay. and East Galway is all hurling, West Galway and North Galway is all football, divided by the railway line as mm -hmm. a real transition. Yeah. So um, just there wasn't, there was no club. Okay. And there was no clubs in the area playing it when, yeah. when I was growing up. And back in the 80s and 90s when I was a young guy, there was no other real sports. Sure. Well. But my dad played a bit of golf, so I got into that quite, quite a lot. And as I said, I played soccer and football would be my fourth sport or mm -hmm. sport. I played a lot of squash as well. But um, so I joined Salt Hill in 2000, in the summer of 2000, after we got beaten by Kilkenny in the 2000 semi final. And I just played a couple of intermediate, um, they were out of the championship at this stage, and I mm -hmm. just played a couple of intermediate championship games. And I was playing Sigerson that year. Um, and after the league final in 2001, uh, Galway played Mayo, um, I got approached to join the panel. Um, and to come and play a league match that they were going to watch me play mm -hmm. a league game. And then I was, after the league game, I was asked, that was on a Friday night, there was a Maybank holiday weekend, um, they were asked, I was asked to come down to play Westmeath in a challenge game. Right. And I'll never forget, I was mortified walking into the dressing room because everyone was looking at me. Because they knew me from the hurling for yeah. the last, I was made my debut in 97 with the hurlers. And so where is this guy going? Because <laughs> nobody really well played football. <laughs> so I was doing my finals in physiotherapy in Trinity at the time, and uh, John O'Mahony asked me to stay down from Dublin on the, and train Tuesday, Thursday, play a trial game Saturday, and he let me know where I stood. Right, okay. So we played Tuesday, Thursday, through the trial game Saturday, I think with a training session Sunday, and then I was named on the championship team to play Leitrim on the Tuesday night. So it was a, it was a whirlwind. It, just mm. came out, it was just total whirlwind. And um, I took uh, John Donlan's place, and that caused a little bit of controversy. Okay. Like I left the panel, and um, because I just, uh, you know, it was, it was a, a boat of the blue mm. throwing me in, um, and they didn't play in the Leitrim game, so there was a whole media furore around that. 
And I'll never forget it. But I was very nervous playing that first Connacht Championship match. I hadn't even played club championship mm. this stage. Um, so I played Connacht Championship before I played club championship. And um, I did okay. I kicked three points, I think, that day. Or two, maybe. Um, and then that was at two o'clock in... Um, and I felt people came down just to, maybe to see me to fail, maybe yeah. to have a gawk and yeah. to see where, what happened. You could have a look and say, where is, why is this hurler playing football? Mm. And there would be quite a, a division between hurling and football in Galway. Um, but I got through it and I play, we, we were, that match was at two o'clock in Tume. And then I had to go to, uh, at the night to play a club hurling championship at six. Right. And then I had to go up at five o'clock that morning to go train to Dublin to start my finals. So it was a pretty hectic mm. two or three weeks. We then, and you know, I don't, the hurlers didn't even realise I was getting, going in at this stage or the hurling management. And it was a bit of shock to them as well that I'd gone in. And um, so that was a challenge to try and, uh, to try and deal with that. For sure. Um, and then we were beaten by Roscommon and we went down to win the All-Ireland. So, mm. so that was a quick, so if you told me, even in, in the, when I was watching the league final, when Mayo yeah. beat them in the league final 2001, if you told me I, I would win All-Ireland with Galway football, I'd have told you you're on what's your marijuana. Sense of what's, your, what's your sense of respect, perspective on that now, looking back? Because it must, like, even just you telling me that story there, it must have just been a crazy little whirlwind of a journey, like. Ah, yeah, I just got, and, you know, we got to the hurling final mm. as well, and then Clarence Bridge, we won our first ever hurling championship. Yeah. A couple, in September, in that, that October. Mm. So it was just, it was just not, it just never got a, a chance to stop and catch your breath. It was an amazing few months. Um, the only thing, we, we, we were very close to winning the hurling. We, mm. we should have won it. Sure. Uh, a few refereeing decisions went, went against us, a few terrible decisions. Um, we had a goal disallowed that I don't think should have been. I had two points over the bar that were signal wide. We'd hawk You know, just yes, small just things. And, you know, Joe Rabbit got very harshly treated that day and won no free. Um, and we, we probably could have won that and should have won that final. That's a big regret. Um, and then I suppose because I was, I played every game in the football up until the final. Mm -hmm. And then maybe because of the hurling and I got dropped in for the football final. But I came on in the end. But, it, it, you know, I suppose hurling was my number one game. Yeah. I'd only started to play football. Mm. Um, so there wasn't, uh, there wasn't as much emotion attached to it, I suppose, if I'm being honest. Because mm -hmm. um, hurling, was, I was dreaming about it. was Joe Completely. Cooney. I was, was my heroes. Um, I was never even football. And I was never on my radar um, growing up. So I suppose I, while I'm very honoured and very privileged and oh, it's over the moon to have a football medal, I would have, you know, the hurling medal would have been the one mm. that I've been chasing since a young boy. Yeah, it makes complete sense to say that, that. Hurling was and is the first love in terms yeah. of sport. I suppose for someone who'd already broken into the hurling panel and was there and was obviously become had become a key part of that mm. setup, where did the motivation or the come from within you to go and say take on John O'Mahony's challenge there to say right okay I'm going to do the Tuesday Thursday trial game of the weekend when you when you're already embedded within a team that was absolutely close and knocking on the door yeah. just I suppose I'm just a little bit curious of where that. What came from it in you to say, actually, I'm going to try and do that as well? Do you get me? Yeah, I don't know. I think yeah. I always admired, I suppose, multiple core athletes, mm. Michael Jordan, or he was a hero of mine. I'd always admired those type of people who could, who could play a lot of sports um, to a certain level. And maybe that, maybe that triggered it in me. Also, go, I remember after winning the 98 All-Ireland Final and the last of 2000 to Kerry. So they were a huge, they were a team of massive stars, Michael Donnellan, Parik Joyce, Kevin Walsh, Tomás Mannion, the Meehans, Sean Dupuyer, <laughs> what a team of leaders, Incredible, you know, yeah. um, you know, Jeff Fallon. So what an opportunity to play with those guys. For sure. You know, and I, I was on, in the stand watching them in 98 and, you know, celebrated like this week, celebrated hugely with them and with Galway when they won the other. So they were heroes as well, even though I was co uh, colleagues with them at the time. So what an opportunity to... And they were not, they lost the final year before, mm. you know, so what an opportunity to just even test yourself and challenge yourself and see, could you do it? Yeah. Because, um, so I just took it on, yeah, I suppose, blindly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, just, the reason I asked is I, I took a quote out of the Irish Times from 2001, and I suppose you touched upon it there on multi-code sportsmen and people that can sort of challenge themselves and, and, and perform, obviously, in different pressurised environments. Like from my perspective, you're certainly one of the last that I remember have been at the top level in both 
And I think as time has gone on, it's, the notion of being able to do both in our games has become less and less, mm. and it's almost probably extinct at this stage. But I just thought it was funny because this is back like 16 years ago in the paper, and it says, um, although it's a little early to start talking about a football here in Dublin Galway, the fact that Julian County players are now less conspicuous than ever has already created notable hype around Alan Kearns. Um, and I suppose you, you'd want there was hype there. Um, was that difficult to channel with Neil? And obviously there was the other issues going on with inside and outside the panel, but just from your individual perspective, was that, was that hype something you embraced and enjoyed? Or was it a, did you feel like it became a distraction in any way? Um, if, I'm, if I'm honest, I suppose, looking back on it, I probably got a little bit carried away, especially around the hurling mm. final. Because um, I, I just can't go back and compare my preparation to the hurling final and into the football and to the hurling in two thousand one, um, and the hurling in two thousand and five. And maybe if I'm honest, maybe I did get a small bit distracted and carried away in mm. the side that was the double and creating history. Um, but I did embrace. I did, you have to enjoy it when you're there. Absolutely. There's only once in life an opportunity, so you have to try and enjoy it. I was, I was focused on enjoying it. But I suppose going to the 2005 final, I said, no, I'm going to go really under the radar here, just focus on my performance. I remember even in the media day, I just ran the opposite side in 2005 and um, just started practicing putting balls over the bar on my own, um, away from everybody. Um, and in 2001, I would have been at the centre of it, I suppose. Maybe I might, you know, my inexperience, but also, I suppose, it, it was a story that yeah. year. Um, so I kept... And I suppose I was just back from Africa in 2005 and I had a huge, uh, total life-changing experience there and I decided I was going to enjoy the day a lot more in 2005 and I put pressure on myself and that's what I wanted to be and I'd learned a lot from the Africans, they smile through their troubles, you know, they, they're constantly smiling and singing and dancing and expressing themselves and I suppose I had three months there and I learned, I'd see people that you know, starving and with That's HIV, true. but they're still singing it. At what stage of the year, 2005, was, were those three months? Was uh, like January, beginning? February, March. March. And I'd met a, and I used to be a big admirer of Haile Gabi Selassie. And if you ever noticed him, when he was doing his marathon, he used to, to smile through it. And I started applying that to the hard training when I came back, enjoying it and smiling through it. Because any player, when you ask them, when, you, when they look back at their top performances, they were enjoying it. They yeah. were in the flow, they were, they were just instinctive. So I made a distinct decision that year of trying to enjoy it, and especially the final. Mm. And I remember Conor Hayes gave a great speech in the leading up to the Tuesday, the Thursday night before the final, and he put goosebumps in the back of my, my uh, goosebumps all yeah. over me. And he said, you know, Crow Park rocks on our island finally. It, it reverberates. Mm. It just rocks and it shakes. Use that energy. Use it. To, and, I, and, I, and I remember walking around the crowd and saying, use and let the energy you know, energised. Yeah. And I did, and I, do, I, do, I scored three or four points that day, I think, at one of my better games for Galway. But, um, so I learned a lot from, 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 from the 2000s. So getting back, it's a long-winded way of saying I probably did get a little bit caught mm. up in the sideshow. That was the double that year, and I suppose looking back as well, it was a challenge handling both squads and handling both managers emotionally. Yeah, absolutely. So you were, there were pressure on you to be here, there and everywhere. And then you felt maybe there was and wasn't there, but maybe you did feel resentment from because you were getting a lot of attention and a lot of media, and you were coming, you were only there half the time, and you were taking some guys' places mm. in both sides, and maybe I was a hurler that never played football, taking a spot in the football. So you kind of were feeling a little bit of I don't know, maybe it was only me, but mm. and that's why they didn't have the confidence or the the ruthlessness to say. Fucky, or no, I'm, I'm going for it. I'm mm. kind of a people pleaser by, by nature. So um, I probably tried to please everybody too much that year instead of being ruthless enough to say, no, I need to do this for my preparation. And probably ended up costing me my performance, costing me uh, my, my performance probably suffered a bit, definitely. You mentioned specifically the, the experience in Africa for those three months. Um, I think the word you used was, was life-changing. Mm. And it's obviously something that, that does become a huge passion for you afterwards but I suppose taking it back to the very beginning thinking first of all what made you want to go out there for, for those couple of months and I suppose explain in some way how you how you felt it did change it and have that strong impact that allowed you even say on the on the day-to-day -day level of coming back and feeling a, a bit of a freer hurler or a bit more at ease or a bit more relaxed but focusing in on I suppose the trip itself what was it about it that that had that impact on you? The trip itself? Yeah. Um, so 
suppose I went there in January 2005, and um, I suppose the first day I landed in, um, in where, where I was based, in a home for, I was a physiotherapist mm -hmm. by profession, I was working in the hospitals in Maryland, in Galway, and um, I was going over to work with an Irish nun in a, in a home for disabled children in the middle of nowhere, in Mongo, in western Zambia, a very poor province, on the edge of the Kalahari Desert, and um, the first night, I suppose, uh, Sister Cathy got a call from one of the, her, her workers in the, in the home that her a relative, a sister or a brother was sick and she needed care. So we drove down um, to the little hut, mud hut, mm. in the bush. And this person was at in-stage HIV AIDS, covered in sores okay. and, and couldn't, had to be propped up by somebody, you know, to sit up. So... So we come back the following day to bring her to the hospital for some reason. They couldn't go at that time. And uh, when we came back the following day, the person had died. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty harrowing yeah. on your first 24 hours. And then I suppose I saw the level of disability. And some of the kids had disabilities that we would have sorted here at birth. Sure. And they'd be, they'd be, some of them are playing sport now. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like club foot hurt. It's called talipus equinovirus. Um, and some of them were, you know, had no parents. Some of them had... You know, where it, we just felt so helpless in terms of, you know, how compared to where I came from mm. uh, and the opportunities I had. Uh, and then I suppose when I landed, I raised 10 grand before I went for developing the physiotherapy unit. That's my, that was my, my kind of task going yeah. out. But when I landed, there was a drought there and Sister Cathy was trying to feed 800 families. So one of the first few days as well, we had to go out and deliver 800 bags of food to 800 families. Mm knowing that they would have one meal, it's one 25 kg, ba 25 kg bag of maize per family, and that would have to do maybe a family of 10 for a month, and they would have to maybe have to survive on this for a meal every second day, and maybe go the last week hungry. Mm. And people come up queuing at her door, tipping their bellies, going hungry, hungry, hungry. That's something I never... Never seen. Never, never seen. Even thought about her. Never even thought about her. Mm. Even the people had no water. They were walking... Kids couldn't go to school because they were walking 10k for water. Right. Um, so that was pretty challenging. Um, so all that... And, like, and, I, and people say, you know, how did it affect you? But you, when you watch that on television, you can turn it off. Yeah. And you can turn on the Champions League, or you can mm. turn on the All Ireland, or you can turn on whatever. Yeah. And you're only seeing it on TV. You're, you're not only seeing it. it. You're you're not not feeling it. There's, there's no connection. Connection. There's no smells. Mm. There's no emotion. There's no real life people. But w I was living amongst it 24 hours a day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week yeah. for three months, and you know that does impact on you, and it does give you a huge life changing perspective, changes perspective on everything. Mm. Um, and plus, I was thinking, geez, these kids have. The same dreams I have to become school teachers, doctors, nurses, but, but by pure fluke or chance of where you're born, mm. they have no chance of doing that. And I could go, and that's was one of the big changes when I went back. I said, well, I'm going to try and fulfill my potential as a sports person, yeah. or as a human being, far more when I go back because I'm lucky enough to, well, you know, home is home, but I, I have the opportunity at home. I won't say I'm lucky enough, but I, because, you know, home is home and they don't know, you know, it's, you can't say you're unlucky to be born here or there, but I had the opportunity and the structures around me to fulfill my potential and whatever I wanted to do. And these kids I was working with, our individuals, our communities didn't, by terms of infrastructure, finance, climate. And I suppose that was one of the big, the big lessons. What age are you at that time? 27. Like it's, an, was even just listening, like it's, it's an incredibly strong and powerful life lesson. I know in terms of, lads back at home playing here or playing professional soccer or playing sports mm. one of the things that's obviously discussed all the time is the athletic identity and, and how it consumes and you know we, mm. we talked through there about what it was like in 2001 playing in both codes and a little bit of hype around and it just you're probably in this little insulated bubble mm. um, I suppose but at 27 someone through, through whatever way shape or form that bubble's probably popped a little bit for you um, and do you feel as if that was a bit of an awakening in yourself um, uh, it's, yeah, it was, I suppose. Mm. It was, yeah, because I suppose um, I came back and then I decided to raise 5,000 euros. Um, I wanted to help and I wanted mm -hmm. to make a difference. I suppose I would never, even though as a physiotherapist, you are making differences in people's lives in, in, in hospital and in yes. terms of getting them back on their feet or back to sport or back mm. to injury. But in terms of real, real troubles, real, yeah. um, 
I wanted to help. Now, with no intention to set up a charity. Okay. No intention at all. I just said to Sister Cathy when I was leaving, I was very emotional leaving because I got mm. to know the kids quite well. And I said, where are they going to end up or what's going to happen to them? And like at any given time, she had 75 kids in her home. Uh, I remember the last day, I was in bits leaving. And um, I said to Cathy, how can I help? Or to stay in touch or stay involved. And she said, Alan, I just love 5,000 euros to sink a well for both. So we'll have clean drinking water. And the clean drinking water will, first of all, will reduce illness because I can test it. Mm. Um, and once I get one, I'll get more, I know it. Um, two, we can, we can get them to irrigate their, the land and teach them how to farm themselves. Mm -hmm. So I can't keep feeding them. I can't, we can't afford this. It's not, it's, un it's not sustainable. And uh, three, the kids can go to school because they don't have to walk a kilometre now for water rather than 10. 10. Um, so I said, okay. By pure fluke, Damien Eagers was visiting Zambia. His uncle lived across the way. Damien was a photographer for Sports File. Okay. And Damien came for two weeks to visit his uncle, who was a captain, uh, captain, priest, mm. or friar. Um, and he knew I was there. And he was on a couple of all-star trips with me overseas. And right. he ran a ra I, we went uh, to Rome to play the Rebbe Cup hurling final, I think, in 2004. And he was yeah. on it. So I knew him, and he said he got in touch. Would you mind if I come over and take your photos, Alan? Because I had no camera back then. There was no iPhone. <laughs> but the camera I had was the yellow Kodak, just yeah. disposable one. <laughs> Rolling it up. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. R rewind. <laughs> or, or wind up. Um, but he came over and he took the most amazing photographs. I wasn't aware of them. Right. Uh, I was just working with the kids or giving out the food yeah. or trying to stop the block. Just in a very natural way. It wasn't a stage photograph. And, yeah, and only for them probably wouldn't have had the same impact. So when I came back, I said... Um, I'd go to all the businesses in Galway. Back then it was 2005, it was mm -hmm. still a boom. Yeah. Builders were, were, were flahoolic with, with the cash and um, the economy was in a great state. So I decided to raise five grand. Mm -hmm. And I put a, got Damien's photos, put them into a brochure, um, information on what, what, what the home did and the project we're trying to set up. And we got the Lauren final that year then as well. So Darren Frell did a piece, he was working on TV3 at the time. Yeah. He saw the photos and he was fascinated by them. And he did the documentary in that. Mm. And then TV3 commissioned a documentary in 2006. So it just happened to snowball. snowball. So five grand became 50 grand. Next thing became 100 grand. The next mm. thing is, oh, gee, I better put some governance around this because this is getting out of hand. Yeah. To leave yourself open. So we formed a board of directors and we've decided to form a charity um, to handle the money. Um, and I did that voluntarily then from 2008. Mm. And it just snowballed, um, and snowballed. And then I was at it full time. Um, somebody sponsored me to go at it full time um, in 2008 or 2009. And I've been at that ever since. Even during the recession, it was hard going, but it was very rewarding. You know, we've mm -hmm. raised five million um, since in terms of public fundraising. And then indirectly, we've got many, many more million okay. directed in, in, uh, invested directly into programs from mm -hmm. various institutions directly to Gert South of Africa. That I'm partnered with now are yeah. straight to the the, or the presentation sisters in, in in Zambia and the projects we, we work in Zambia. So yeah, again, it was organic. Never intended to to do it, but it became my life. Then it's an incredible journey, like um, to go from as I like coming home with that target of five thousand mm -hmm. euros um, to for to transform the way it did into quite a large operation. Um, like, as you as you reflect on that now, like, do you think do you think that was just something that you you were meant to do, and you, it was you were in the right place at the right time when you found a calling or a passion? Do you think you just stumbled into it and went with? Because you know, it's a huge passion, and a, there must be a huge inner motivation within you to to take that project on and to really scale that up and do that well. How do you feel when, you, when you're looking back yeah, on that journey? Looking back on it now, when you look back and you say, yeah, I think it was meant to happen because, mm. um, you know, why did I go in the first place? You know, I went through a, a bad relationship breakup mm. in 2004 and struggled with that. And I helped a, 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 one of my, I helped a, a, a lady who was suffering from Down syndrome at the time. And we helped her to walk again and her smile lifted me out of my own gloom. Okay. And um, then I said, oh, I want to go to Africa. Mm. Um, I had had the opportunity now, no commitments, we were out of the championship. So I actually approached goal mm. and they turned me down. 
in in Jan in September two thousand and four, and I wanted to go from up from September to Christmas in that back, classic off season, yeah, period. and come back for the pre season. Yeah, being hammered by Kilkenny, we'd lost the club county final with Salt Hill to Killer Aaron, and I said, "Oh, jeez, I need to get out of here." Um, and people asked me, "Why did I go to Africa? Mm-hmm. Why didn't you stay in Ireland or do something socially in Ireland?" And when I look back now, I I and I dig deep into the subconscious. What was the trigger? I was seven in 1984 when uh, Live Aid was on the television and Bob Geldof and the whole thing. Yes. And uh, I hid behind, I used to watch the scenes on the news. I was emaciated babies and starving people. And I, was, I, used to, I couldn't watch it. I had to hide behind mm. the couch and the news came on, fearful. And that year, my dad won the captain's prize in Gort Golf Club and to the sweepstakes. Okay. And he backed himself. Now, I'm not sure if it was 800 or 800 pounds he won, but it was a lot of money. And he won the captain's prize and he, and he, and he won the money. And back in 84, it was a kind of a recession. He had young, five young kids, or I'm not sure how many young kids he had at the time, but three or four was anyway. Um, and we, we didn't have a lot of money. Mm. Um, and he gave every penny that to Live Aid. So that must have triggered something in yeah. me, that unassuming act. That little did he realise that that simple act would result maybe 30 years later in his son raising millions for the same cause so the ripple effect I suppose and I'm glad I can tell him that that, yeah. that was probably the, the that that was probably that so never underestimate the power of actions be about positive or negative on young people and how it can be that trigger or ignition moment that they call it, I think Malcolm Glag would call it ignition moment yeah. so I think it was a combination of the emotion I've seen on television and then this mm. real positive role model of mine doing this giving this all of money away um, must have um, trigger something in me on a subconscious level that resurrected in 2005. What was it like to have that conversation with your dad down the line, tracing that back? And because obviously it was something he obviously just done in the moment and made a mm. made a good decision to say, actually, do you know what? Is that something you discussed with him? Um, yeah, when kind of <laughs> in uh, yeah, it is. We did discuss it, and I suppose he wouldn't be a man for showing great yeah. emotion, or he wouldn't accept many compliments yeah. but you see deep down that he was mm. delighted and the fact that I acknowledged it publicly in a couple of, of, of talks as well when he was there was nice mm. and it's nice for him to know that you know he had a massive impact on me in terms of and a positive impact and he can take as much credit for this work uh, than, than anybody else so I suppose with, from that moment tracing it back and that subconsciously that leads to a decision for you to, for, to go to Zambia mm. um, and I suppose there you reference it's, it's Sister Cathy there was it yeah um, that came out by chance as well so that's because you obviously land and by all means you're a good natured person you're going out with a good right. heart looking to make a difference um, and to, to come across someone like that who's obviously able then to channel what you have mm. and to channel the skill set and the energy and the goodwill you have to I suppose to transmit it out to uh, to as many people as possible in mm. a way Um what was it about her that inspired you in that, in that, that, at that time that you were there? Um, what was her? Ah, look at this. She was in a powerhouse. She was a, a, in her 60s, an Irish woman, um, dragging a community single-handedly. You know, she was running a home for disabled children, 75 kids at any given time in her mm-hmm. care, and no money. She'd feed 800 families. She was trying to build income generating projects. She was trying to build houses. We built loads of houses for disabled people there as well. She was trying to sing, get wells, trying to get people farming. You know, she was just an entrepreneur. Mm. And there was just nothing that couldn't be done. She was just, you know, nothing was impossible. And the effect that she was having on the community was, was powerful. And she wasn't like um, a nun that you would associate in Ireland. She was out there digging mm. the trenches. She was building houses. Just she doing was what had to be done. Doing what had to be done and, get, and, and whatever, it took, whatever it took. And she could be president of Ireland. She's that talented mm. like, and that driven and focused. And it was all selfless, mm. you know, selfless. And to think about what it would have been like, she was after 30 years, like to leave Ireland and come out there on your own and not knowing where you're going and to face the community and live amongst the people. People say, oh, you're great, Alan, you know. And I always say, look, they're the real heroes. Yeah. They've sacrificed all their lives. I'm okay. I'm here li- mm. out in a golf club or playing hurling football for Galway or, you know, r- working with GPA and going to Crow sure. Park and having me coffees and me pints and whatever. And, but they're out there in the middle of it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And 
delighted to be and sacrificed all their own dreams to help others. So I suppose that really what inspired me. Yeah. I, I also, nobody knew her story mm. or nobody knew other stories like her. And I thought it was my main aim to tell her story okay. rather than about me. I get you. To tell her story so people could be inspired by her and help her to, to make a massive impact on, on, on so many vulnerable people. Because I suppose leadership is a, is a strand that has come up across loads of the different conversations across the podcast in the last, since we've been doing them this year. And it's a topic I'm fascinated by and I read about, I read online, I buy books, uh, constantly trying to upskill and learn more. But so from what you're saying there and, and the way you've described that, what was it like to see leadership from Sister Cathy that was just so unfiltered, so so probably clear? Um, and you, I think you used the word selfless there. What was it like just to see that in the flesh and to see how leadership like that can actually be the glue that keeps something together? Yeah, I think uh, the main thing I think is so many people talk about leadership, but they talk the talk, but they don't walk the yeah. walk. And she was walking the walk. She's walking it. You know, she had a vision. Mm -hmm. She communicated the vision, and then she inspired us to follow her, and brought, brought everyone else bought into that vision. And uh, but she was living in it as well. You know, people know when you're when you're spoofing, when you're not spoofing. As people know when you're a real leader, not a real leader. You just have that presence. You just have that action. You lead by example rather than by talking about it. And that's what she did. In terms of the so the, the money that you've raised, because like, I know I, I think a lot of us, and some of himself, is, gets guilty of as well. You just oh, how much was raised? Oh, mm -hmm. very good, fair play to you. But in terms of the impact that that was able to have over there, through if it's the Alan Kearns project or through partnerships, is there any though, is there any particular ones that stick out with you? That's something that you're a particular project that you're proud of, or something that that sticks with you? Yeah, there's, there's a good few. Mm. Um, yeah, we have. I just we have a. To believe that we have a sports centre there right? and we use sport and music as mediums to engage kids who are not in the formal education system and then through sport and music we teach leadership programs, health and sanitation, HIV education, okay. numeracy and literacy. But the sport is the, is the sport hook that gets the people in. And the music and theatre. Okay. We partner with Barefeet Dance Group as well and you know we have a, they have a soccer club there mm -hmm. at the moment called After Us and um, which is nice. What's the soccer? Is it, is it, is it Alan, Alan Kern's soccer club? Alan Stars. <laughs> <laughs> they call it, not me. But, um, so that's a lovely. That's a lovely thing to see. And they have, yeah. they've won tournaments and they keep us updated. And they've won under under seventeen under, and under twenty three teams mm. and a senior team. It's the real legacy. Piece so it's brilliant. And we have a school yeah. there that we help fund. It's dark under a three by another Irish nun under a three. And I was mm. nineteen hundred kids there. And we've built oh. several. We've built a sport, a school hall. Um, a science and um, a science and economics block, um, and three and three or four more big buildings with three classrooms in each. Okay. So now and it's gone from a basic school to a secondary school since it's I've a, been It's there. a hope in a way. So it's nineteen hundred yeah. kids are going to school that wouldn't be educated. And then the home for disabled children. Now we're building um, two big enterprises around it. So in eighteen months, the home for disabled children will be will will, will generate one hundred and fifty percent. Will generate one hundred and fifty percent of its own. Um, Revenue. Okay. So we're in, the, we're in phase four of a 78-bedroom lodge. Wow. And a, and a 9 seater restaurant in the lodge. That, that's already generating 80% of the running costs of the home for disabled children. By fit, when phase four is finished, you know, it'll be, it'll be unbelievable. Um, and we're building a, a, an industrial park uh, where we have a expanding our block-making plant where we sell blocks. Um, and there's big development going on in this mon in town of Mangu because the Chinese have managed to build a bridge across the Zambezi River, okay. connecting us to Angola, uh, which is a port on the west side of the continent. Previously, you know, the nearest port would be Dar es Salaam mm -hmm. in Tanzania or maybe down in South it's Africa. Big, big, a big impact on trade. So it's a major transition town. Yeah. And so, and, but there's no um, building materials that sell quality building materials. So we're, we're setting up that. But the big thing about those two enterprises are they, they're creating loads of jobs and all the locals are getting the jobs. Mm. We believe in upskilling locals. Um, they can then, uh, you know, have support their families. The profits then from these two commercial enterprises goes back into the Cheshire Home for Disabled Children and all its community projects. Um, so, can, so, so they'll generate their own money there rather than us depending on yes. Ireland for or, or overseas. My, my, my mind went back there as we were talking to, you saying going around handing the 25 kilograms bags of maize, yeah. uh, we're saying it's completely unsustainable to something like that. Uh, and, that's, and actually, that's probably one of, the, one of the biggest things I'm proud of. Are that, look at, I didn't do it, it's Cathy that did it, and it's mm. all her vision and all her ideas. 
and, and, and the locals because they know best. We don't go in and say, you need this, that, and the other. You always consult with the locals and they know, what, and Cathy, they know the, the way the culture and the way, the, the way politics works over there and what's needed in terms of community development. But like, we, we got one well and we sang several more mm. and we haven't given a bag of food out since. So, you know, which that's a success in itself. Completely. Like, I suppose, from your own, as we listen to talk there, describing some of those projects and thinking of the sheer impact mm. of the of the size of some of the projects as well. This is not a, you know, um, I suppose you say a well, it's getting the money and drilled down and you get it. But like types of, like, the sports centre, like big multi-scale projects. From someone, from, from your perspective, who graduated as a physiotherapist, right? Mm. Um, been involved in some of those projects, empowering them to happen. Where does that skill set come out of within you or the confidence even to take on stuff like that and do it? Do you get me? So sometimes people come out and, you know, I can't do that. I've never done that before. I won't do that. And it's a sort of a, it's a thing I feel passionate about in trying to encourage people to try something different or try something new. I'm not saying everything ends up at that scale, but you get the basic premise that I'm at and actually getting out of your comfort zone a little bit and saying, I'm going to try and do something different. And I'm just, I'd just be curious to know where you feel that, if confidence or drive, whatever word you, you choose or you see is the better fit, where that came from and, and what helped you do it? Um, I think I just went with it. Mm. You know, sometimes you just, just got to go. go with it and whatever happens, happens yeah. and you take the chance. Put one, take the first step and then mm. you, know, you never know where it'll lead you. Um, and that's why I say it to a lot of people, just take that first step and who knows where, you, where you'll end up. Yeah. But I, the key thing was I got a lot of good people around me and we got a great board and then I got great supporters and great volunteers and you're always willing to learn, always go and meet people who have done it and learn from them because you're always learning and, you know, um, and the cause was too big, mm-hmm. you know, the emotion was too strong. I had to do it no matter how. I was like, you know, when, you know, I think I always refer back to Victor Frank and he says, what's, the, what's his great statement? He who has a why can overcome anyhow. Mm-hmm. So the why was so strong, those people needed help. The kids needed help. I couldn't forget about it, and the why was too strong. And I'd figure out the why, the how, how we're going to do it as I went along. Mm. But we got great people in as well, and great support. And the GA helped massively. And being having, being, I was just going to ask that. Yeah, yeah. that helped. Look at the GA, the GA, like the Crow Park were amazing to us as well. Mm. We were Camp Charity of the Year, one year. They opened up the pictures for us twice. We raised. It directly from Crow Park alone when we got 50 case was from the charity of the year and then we raised 200k in each of those matches so okay. a quarter of a million just directly from Crow Park alone which is huge which is massive yeah. especially during, in, during the recession mm-hmm. as well because it was so hard to raise money for overseas because yeah. all the folks turned inward like towards inwards. Ireland in terms yeah. of paying a house in terms of mental illness became massive mm-hmm. homelessness became massive people suffering from huge debt became yeah. massive all the all the charities were HC budgets were slashed you know, so mm-hmm. then the corporates and the philanthropies had to step in. So we, were, we found it very difficult to get funding joining those. But we, we managed. Um, we had to become very creative and very innovative in terms of our fundraising and how we did it. But um, it, was, it was a long, long slog during those years. But again, the why was strong enough, I think. And um, So I hope that answers the question. No, it does. It absolutely does. And you... You referenced the sort of the collective power of the GAA in terms yeah. of being able to tap into a network um, where you can jump out if it's people you know and getting the right people together. Um, but I suppose I was actually was I'd be interested as well in terms of the individual experience of coming from a background of being successful, uh, having achieved certain things. Those on the field lessons, I suppose. Do you feel as if they're able to be transmitted across into? To the, the everyday life and and it, when channeling the right way can have can have a strong impact. I suppose getting at that sort of that relationship between life and sport, really. Yeah, I agree totally. I think most people would, you know, get that commitment, you mm-hmm. that drive to be on a county panel. You have to have ambition. You have to have discipline. Mm-hmm. And I suppose I would took on a lot, and it's probably you know the charity probably did affect my game again. I got dropped from the county panel because of it in two thousand and eight because. You know, I always had probably too much on. Yeah. It was a big, big um, fault of mine, I suppose, that I always probably took on a little bit mm-hmm. too much, be it hurling football at one time. Yeah. And I was hurling a football and a physio and the charity. The charity because, um, so, you know, it probably did impact on my game in the, in, in the later years and cost me three or four years of my inter-county career. And one manager did tell me, 
if I was to come back in the panel, I'd have to give up the charity. But he didn't realise it was my full-time job at the time. He thought I was doing it part-time still. That's, I know, because we, we all get caught up in it, like, in terms of playing and passion and yeah. giving it everything. But that's some statement to come out with as well. Like, but that yeah. was the perception, I suppose, yeah. you know, that this was... I, maybe this, I had more commitment to this than, than the game. And it probably was false. Your job. <laughs> yeah, it was probably false. But I was told that. Yeah. So I suppose that was their perception. Mm. And it's amazing, perception... It's a funny one, isn't it? can get out there and can be totally, you know... But anyway, and I suppose, you know, maybe... Um, Is there any hint of regret around that for you? No. no there might be the one regret was, would be that... Um, I suppose I never really focused on one thing, okay. one game at a time, and maybe, uh, maybe then, maybe not, maybe, maybe I'm just thinking uh, foolishly here, but maybe, maybe I didn't reach the heights I could have mm. in terms of hurling, or because I was always distracted by the football or the charity or other stuff. Um, I always be doing something else, be it soccer or golf, or you know. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe that's just my character, <laughs> or my, my, or my characteristics, but. Um, um, no, no regret, Gene Mac. When you see the, the lives you've saved, you've talked through there. No, yeah. no, no, no. Just you couldn't. That's a fr- you know, like it's a game at the end of the yeah. day as well. Um, and this is life, mm-hmm. and there's no bigger gain in the game of life. No. I, presu- I presume. That's, I, I suppose it, it leads me on perfectly to this. I know I have a few notes here in front of me. I'm starting to wonder if you're reading them, but uh, I know you. After in 2011, after after being out of the setup. You go back in with the Galway hurlers after the success of Clarence Bridge, mm. is that right? Yeah. Um, and I was reading, there was an interview you did, I can't remember where it was, but I lifted a quote out of it because um, you just referenced the game of life there. And so I just read it out. But in an interview, they said, When you witness death, you come back to play sport and realize this has to be enjoyed. The fear of playing bad has to go. If you have that fear, you will inevitably play poorly anyway. I suppose going back in 2011, are you, are you playing sport from a different place there? From you when you go back when you go back in at it, yeah, you are. And I think in 2011 in particular, Michal Dunne was our manager as yes. well, and he demanded far more of us as leaders. He demanded we set our own standards, mm-hmm. and then we, as a team rather than internally, yes. we need to drive each other on rather than the manager driving each other on, and we need to take ownership of our own responsibilities. So that was obviously quite a culture shift oh, within massive culture shift. Yeah. We had won one in 2001, and we hadn't won anything since okay. then and uh, I know we the great Portumna teams were there and the great Athen Wright teams and Sarsfield teams so mm-hmm. there was dynasties there that were massive teams in, in Galway hurling but we still never fulfilled our potential um, you know we didn't we, we didn't really fulfil it but he changed that around in terms of demanding more from us but as well I remember I was in India actually I brought a group to India in an, in an ashram yoga meditation trip over to India and there's this guy uh, a guru you could call him, um, I know him well. Um, and we were there for three weeks. And I was just asking about visualization and spontaneity and blah, blah, blah. And he was saying, um, you know, you should play the game for the enjoyment of others as well, not just yeah. for yourself. And he was trying to say, you should play the game, express yourself, show off what you can do, and try to bring smiles to other people's faces. Mm-hmm. So instead of worrying about my own winning or my own losing or my own performance, I decided to try and look at bring huge joy to the community or my family or my or the sick people in the village mm-hmm. and play for them rather than myself. And in that way, then you get a sense of freedom. You just express yourself. You just go. Liberate. And probably my best year from club. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I had a really good year with the club and I combined with Michal's, you know, um, not, no acceptance of mediocrity, combined with this new mindset, I suppose, of, you know, not playing for myself but playing for others and, you know, a sense of responsibility. And it's more, it's the joy we could bring others. Yeah. Um, and that freed me up just to play with freedom and enjoy it way more and not think about awards or think about honours or medals or whatever. And the rest will take care of itself. Yeah, it's a really, it's, it's a topic I always find, I, I find really interesting just from, my own, from my own experiences. It, you actually, we're hearing more and more people talk about that now. I think particularly a lot of the younger players that come in, not just our games, just across the board, can get bogged down in the, the pressure aspect of it, the systems-based mm. If it's, you know, if it's systems-based performance and there's lots of different aspects to sport now the way it is. But but when in the middle of all that, I certainly feel, and I'm, I'm just curious how you feel about it, is that there certainly needs to be made a little bit more room for that that creative aspect, that expression, mm-hmm. that joy. Because um, I think it's something that I'm talking for me, from my opinion, but yeah. isn't that what, for me anyway, isn't that what sport is meant to be? Mm. A place where you go and express yourself, and if you have something else going, on, you can't escape from it a while. But also, as you said, bring joy to friends, bring joy to family, mm. and 
and have fun. Yeah, so I think and you always play better when you enjoy yourself mm. and have fun and you play instinctively. Uh, anytime I thought, right, I'm have to be there, here, there, everywhere, I got caught up in, in, in paralysis by analysis and yeah. and just everyone, if you ask anyone to recall their best games, they always say, I wasn't thinking. Mm-hmm. So you have to try, and, I know you need systems now and structures, but if you can incorporate both where you're, you know your system so, yeah. so instinctively, then you just go and play it rather than being, you know, over-analytical. Um, but you need to bring fun back into it. You need to bring enjoyment back into it or be unsustainable. Anyway, the careers are getting a lot shorter now as well mm. because of the huge demand on them and I suppose the huge toll mentally as well and the huge sacrifice they have to make. It's got to hold another, lev- another level, you know. And having been able to go back in in 2011 and play that year, I suppose the reality with time of anything is you then have to start facing up the transition out of the game. Mm. How was that particular journey of a few? Because like, what we've talked about over the last 45 minutes or so, I think there's been lots of spikes, ups and downs, priorities, doing both, doing one, charity, having work. stepping away, work. So there's been, it's been very, so spiky is the phrase that's in my head. But then to actually go back in from, from that place, that, from that quote that I read out, to actually then have to go, actually, I've got to start transition, transitioning out of this, this again. Um, how was that for you? Um, so I've never really thought about it because there's always so much going on <laughs> to fill the void of... Um, sports yeah. in terms of Africa and I suppose I got to a sense of perspective in my travels to you know Africa mm-hmm. and India and these places and the different things I was on and doing that um, yeah acceptance is the key word I think you need to say I was lucky enough to have a great career or to have a reasonably successful career um, and I had loads of I had loads of passions to fill my void be it golf I had a huge passion for golf to, to you know to go really low I had a huge passion for for, for the charity and a huge passion for, you know, for travel and a huge passion for leadership development and, and doing other things. So I viewed it maybe as an opportunity to do other things as well, yeah. even though I probably look back and regret on some things, mm-hmm. um, whether I didn't win that All-Ireland medal. Um, but to get back to your original question, yeah, I definitely went back in with uh, a great sense of freedom and enjoyment. Um, and so I'd already transitioned out of the game at that stage <laughs> once, so I kind of knew what it was like. And yeah. it is tough the year after, you know, or the, sure. even the year after they got the All-Ireland final and in 2012 and they were very close and while you're delighted with them it is very tough to sit mm. there and watch it when you've been there for 15 years and not as I said in the, in the very start not having reached the Holy Grail yeah, You mentioned I suppose around that if it's in terms of balance and I think you've been quite open there and you probably had too much going on at times yeah. and balance could have been too far maybe gone the other way yeah. I think where so a lot of other players particularly, I think during particularly those beginning years of the career if you go back to say when you were talking about playing for both is that mm you can let your life be consumed by just the sport and aspect yeah. too. I suppose for, from, the, from the position you're in now with, with the perspectives that you have and having been able to travel and play and do all the work you've done, how important do you feel it is for players to find that balance? And I suppose just to put that, to contextualise that view is that well, everyone's balance is different anyway and it's not so mm. what worked for you wouldn't work for me and what worked for me wouldn't work for someone else. But how important do you feel it is for a player to try and find that that stable space for them to thrive in, like? Most vital. Um, and we know from our work with the GPA that, um, you know, a, a bit, when your off-field stuff is, is in good shape, your on-field stuff is in mm. good shape. And sometimes my off-field stuff was probably too chaotic, with too much going on, so my on-field stuff suffered. Um, or even relationship stuff, if they're going wrong off-field, it transfers onto your on-field stuff. Or if you're stuck in a job you hate, you know, that does transfer onto your anthropic stuff because you're rotting away there in, in stale and negative energy and negative space. And it's scientifically proven in research mm-hmm. that, you know, if, if your off-field stuff is balanced and in a good, in a good place and you're fulfilled off-field, your on-field performance will be increased by 20%. So, you know, that's vital. And that also helps you transition out of sport that mm-hmm. you have other interests. Now, I know you have to be really focused and that's probably one thing I didn't have. I had too much things going on. I didn't really focus on my game. Um to get the maximum out of your, out of your career. Um, but I think you just need a little bit of, you definitely need to balance off the field as well and to have those passions taken to a certain level so that you can transition and have something to fill that space because it is a massive void when you do of course it. Is, yeah. The buzz of playing at Crow Park last week or mm-hmm. for the 80,000 people and the buzz of being centre of attention and the buzz of being, you know, I've just performed at the highest level and the, the, the training at that level and being involved in elite sport is, is just huge. You know, and everyone, everyone wants to be there. 
but to, it's hard to match that. Mm. But you have to try, and you have to find other passions and reconnect with, you know, who you, who other sides you that gives you, gives you a bit of purpose. Yeah, like, I suppose you and you you mentioned you referenced the GPA directly there, and I think I suppose in terms of this podcast series that I'm doing, having those ten having ten conversations with ten different individuals. So for a lot of the guys, the former players. The GPA, as it is now, wouldn't have been around, um, mm. particularly, especially at this, the earlier days of your playing career. Um, but I suppose from the position you're in now, so this series has been produced to go along with the former players event, which has happened in Crow Park on September 16th of this year. Um, I suppose if we could give you a question to be directed specifically for former players, mm. um, what would you say to sort of any former players that are listening that maybe don't know anything about what the GPA services are? Um, what would you say to them in terms of the availability of them and the power of them? Oh, they're massive, you know. Um, I suppose personally, personally, I've experienced um, the power of it mm. uh, and the excellent um, service providers they use. You know, in, in 2015, we were struggling badly with just burnout from the charity. And I'd, uh, I was getting married uh, and hoping to have a family. And... Um, and I went to them, I said, look, I'm struggling here in terms of, I'm just exhausted. Um, and in terms of financial sustainability for myself and all that as well. So they said, why don't you have a, a few life coaching sessions and see where you want to go and have a, have a think back. Just take a step back because I was consumed by it. And then that led me to merging up, meeting the life coach and working through a great, unbelievable individual and um, partnering with Gert Self of Africa. Mm-hmm. And that took an, an awful lot of load off, uh, an awful uh, emotional load off me, mm-hmm. responsibility in terms of the back office stuff. And now the, the projects are sustainable and in a great organisation. Yes. And if anything happens to me, you know, my, my partner... The show, and the show goes partner, on. The show goes on. Mm. And plus I can transition out, a little bit out of it. I love bringing people to Africa on our leadership programmes. Mm. And uh, other uh, companies were asking me, what I do this on a corporate level in Ireland and other places? But I needed to upskill myself. So, you know, they helped me to go to the IMI to do executive coaching. Mm. You know, and uh, in t- uh, two years ago, 20 months ago, our little boy was born, uh, Ruan. And unfortunately, the first five months of his life, he was critically ill. So he spent three months in Temple Street and life saving surgery in Manchester on his pancreas. But the GPA were brilliant to me, my family, and my wife during, during that period where they offered us counselling. Yeah. And you know, that was brilliant just to talk to somebody to get through that because, you know, I was a first time parent, major change in itself, mm. but then to have to. Spend the first five months not knowing what's going to happen, yeah. and there's no preparation. And there's for no that. preparation for that. And you know, the, the, you know, the service that they provided was brilliant, mm. and they needed that. And um, so that's another service that, that they were so good to me. And so, I would re- tell any intercounty player, any office of the struggling with beat relationships, family, illness, um, uh, uh, career advice, career crossroads. Um, Anything. And, you know, I came into the GPA and asked for help and just advice on, on um, the charity and what, yeah. how I was getting burnt out. And I ended up joining Self of Africa, doing executive coaching, formed the Inner Winner Institute, and, you know, and also, little did I know, you know, giving me uh, emotional support during one of the toughest periods of my life in terms of the illness of my little boy. So, you know, that's amazing support. Incredible, yeah. You know, so um, it's there. And people just have to ask. And again, it's just taking that first step and it's taking that bravery. It's courage to ask for help. And it's just a matter of reaching out and who knows where it'll take you. As I said to people, you know, one particular pair came in and asked for help uh, about setting up a business in a totally out-of-the-box out yeah. situation. And he ends up in New York, mm-hmm. you know, because of the connection and support the GPA can provide. It's amazing. Well, first of all, just thank you for that, for your personal testament there. I know it's very... It's, there's obviously some, it's very personal to you and it's mm. your journey um, and I think you've, very, you've, you've really nicely captured the sort of the support that you felt and, and I suppose more I suppose more importantly the support is actual the benefit of it and, mm. and I think just as I was as I was listening to you talking there the, the thing that kept going through the back of my mind was just the power of having one conversation sometimes and how mm. it snowballs into another thing or bounces onto someone mm. else or you get in touch with someone else and how actually just talking about whatever it is that's on your mind, whatever stress it is, in whatever way, shape, or form, and it will be different for everybody because we all have loads of different things going on, but actually just having that first conversation and, as you said, taking that first step, is it's a really strong 
not he flies, isn't it? It is, yeah, it is. <laughs> and, yeah, I think, yeah, I, know, I don't know the quote, but it's all about just fear and it's, it's just taking the jump. Yeah. And fear is the biggest crippler of all. Mm. Fear of being judged, fear of what people think of you. Failure. Failure. Who gives a shit? Nobody cares about it. Nobody mm. gives a damn. So why don't you just take the step in? And the big thing, and I know, I know I've spoken here um, openly, but the big thing about the GPA and what they offer is it's totally confidential. Mm. Nobody knows. Unless you want them to know. Exactly. Not even your teammate or your work colleague or the manager, the staff. I don't. I mm. you know. I do some work with the GPA now in terms of promoting the programs in the squads in Connacht and Clare Hurlers and doing all footballers. But um, I don't even know who who. Jo- I go out and promote the programs, talk to players, but I don't know if they if they take them up or not unless they want me to know. And several players have taken up programs that I hadn't a clue they had gone through until they told me afterwards of the benefit it it, it had been to them. That sense of wanting to help other people. Supposed to help themselves, and the want mm. for the want of a better phrase, is obviously something that's that you're passionate about. And I know you specifically referenced the the Inner Institute there mm. for, for yourself. So I suppose for anyone that's that listen that doesn't have an understanding of that or, or not sure what that is, how would you describe that? So where did that project come from, and why is, you you referenced the importance of the why earlier on is why do, why do you do it? Yeah. Um I suppose the Inner Winner Institute, it came from, we used to bring people to Africa on a leadership program because um, I wanted to give people the experience that I got mm. from, during my three months, a sense of, you know, what are your real values? Mm. And when you go to Africa, it's raw, it's natural, it's spiritual, it's something with that red sand yeah. that just grounds you back down to earth. You have 10 days out there, then have uninterrupted time and space, no phone, no email. And then you're immersed in with the kids with the, in the orphanage or the school or the soccer team or the home of disabled children, and they just blow you away in terms of their unbreakable human spirit, how they smile and dance through life and through their troubles. And in that space then, it's a really powerful place to be, to actually ask the big questions. You know, what, what am I doing? Am I doing what I want to do? And if not, why not? How do I get there? And in that space, your family are open to dig deep and reflect. And we then do uh, workshops. So you have workshops um, combined with immersion into the projects. It's a very powerful combination um, with, with huge results. For, for, and a lot of corporates have seen people on it. Um, so when I transitioned into South Africa, a lot of people were, were, were asking me to do it in Ireland and do it on a commercial basis and do it um, a training in Ireland okay. and in India. And so just applying places, the same principles. Applying the same yeah. principles. So we bring people to really powerful places and we connect them to really powerful people. Mm. And that combination then... Um, and we, we're big into experiential learning and immersive learning, where you bring you away for five or ten days in a really transformational kind of power place yeah. and connected in with people who walk the walk, like Cathy's mm-hmm. or like um, the Jerry Duffy's or like yeah. uh, people who, who are really authentic and walk the walk. And then we, we learn by doing. We teach people a lot of tools and techniques for performance or stress. Um, and then they must practice them in, 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 crea- in, in real life events that we create on the programme. So when you experience the benefits of them firsthand, your family are likely then to integrate them into your daily routine. So, you know, it's based on based on that basically. Yeah. And really powerful programmes. The right just through what those those lessons that you were talking about there, I suppose one of the big things that was jumping out to me or and correct me if I'm interpreting yeah. it in the wrong way, is that a lot of it is around self awareness and connecting with yourself. Mm. Um, and I know particularly when, I'm still, I'm still youngish, but as definitely as a as a younger man, that was a thing I probably actively avoided doing. Was actually, mm. you know, what am I about? What am I doing? Where am I going? Um, I suppose, what what do you think scares people off taking that really strong look in the mirror? Not the look in the mirror to fix your hair, like the actual what am I doing? Where am I going? What is my purpose? Um, what like so for me, I got it through. It was a counselling experience, mm. and that was a, so it was obviously very. I suppose I see a start at the bottom of a, of a hill or a mountain and, and climb up it. But I suppose it can be done in lots of other ways of just actually reset, resetting, refocusing. It can be done through exactly what you've described there in the Inner Institute. It can be done by going on a college course for mm. coaching. But what do you think, from your experience or from your own opinion, what do you think scares people off actually being willing to do that? Fear. Yeah. Fear what they'll find mm. and fear what decisions they'll have to make then. Because they might have to make some big decisions. Yeah. And it, nobody likes change or challenge themselves. They like the comfort, the status quo. That's what I think.
there you have it folks that's episode 13 of the real talks podcast and what a powerful conversation it was from one alan to another i just like to express a very sincere thank you to this ga legend for his honesty and insight throughout our discussion he's someone that just oozes authenticity compassion and leadership and i hope you learned as much from him as i did i should also say that during our chat alan mentioned his son was unwell for a period but i'm delighted to say he's now well and in full health as I wind up the show for this week, I think it's really important that we take a second to highlight just how powerful an impact many of our playing heroes are having on society both in Ireland and much further afield. We're so lucky to have these brilliant characters in our games, and I think it's unreal how Alan is using his life lessons and experiences to inspire others. If you'd like to learn more about his Inner Winner Institute, go to innerwinnerinstitute.com. That's innerwinnerinstitute.com. Don't forget if you want to check in on previous episodes with the likes of Kevin McMenamin, Brendan Maher, Jamie Clark, Cora Staunton, Amy McGee and many others, you can just go to realtalks.ie. That's realtalks.ie. My name is Alan O'Mara and you've been listening to episode 13 of the Real Talks podcast. 